Okay, why are energy bands important? They make it possible for solids to be either electronic insulators, conductors, or semiconductors. You guys knew that. I don't understand how a, a closely grouped set of discrete energy levels creates a continuous band. So, if you look at your calculator, does your calculator represent continuous numbers or discrete numbers? So, discrete. But it's a pretty good approximation because you've got eight decimal places. So now if we have 10 to the 23 atoms in a solid this big, then there's 10 to the 23 energy levels over an energy band of an EV. So you've got, it would be like having a calculator with 23 decimal places. So really good approximation to a continuum. Not a continuum, but I mean, once you put in, in interactions, those there will be some uh, some spread in those energy levels anyway, so they'll probably overlap very close to a continuum. How does an electron pass through the Fermi energy? So uh, once we take into account um, the interactions of the electrons with the atoms and all that stuff, there won't just be uh, the Fermi uh, sphere there'll be some energy bands above that. So you can give the energy, well, the ener Fermi level might be in the middle of the band even. So you have to add some energy, and then you can move the electron up. So this calculation of the Fermi, Fermi energy, that is telling us what the lowest energy state of that set of electrons is. And we can always go to an excited state if we add some energy to one or more of the electrons. Uh, so why does it take more energy to excite an electron in a full band than in a half full one? So these are our bands, and uh, this band, well, if this band is full, so there's an electron here, well, there's electrons all through the band. If I want to add energy to an electron, there's no state in here that it can go to, so this is the minimum amount of energy have to add in order to move it up. But if, the if this band was only half full, or half empty, depending on your point of view, I can just add this little bit of energy here, and there's a, there's a state right there. So I can add an arbitrarily small amount of energy to excite the electron there. So it'll be easier to make electrons flow if the band is half full, then if it's full. So in that case, insulators would be ones would be inter full bands. Yeah. Uh, when an electron jumps from an entirely filled band, how is is the transition energy proportional to the energy of the forbidden gap? Well, so I think we just did that right. It has to have at least this much energy. Can't go here because there's no energy level there. Does this theory explain superconductors? No. Um, so you actually have to include interactions. And uh, what made it so hard to explain superconductors was that it wasn't just the interactions between the electrons, and it wasn't just the interactions between the electrons and the protons. It was interactions between electrons and vibrations of the lattice of all the of the solid. So there's an effective force between the electrons. The electron smacks 
the lattice of atoms, the lattice of atoms vibrates, and that jiggles some electron somewhere else. And that causes an attractive force between electrons. So that's why it took 50 years to figure it out. Uh, what is the physical interpretation of Dirac comb? What is Griffiths trying to portray? So he was doing a one-dimensional case. So imagine you had a bunch of atoms, and they've all knocked out an electron. So an electron is moving through a bunch of atoms. And what you'd see is that each atom, there's some little Coulomb potential. So now, if you squint your eyes a lot, um, uh, say that the atoms were far apart, then you could approximate that by attractive delta functions. And then if you tried to solve that problem, it's too hard. Well, it's harder than the one he solved. So he said, because you have to worry about bound states. So if we make them repulsive delta functions, so now it has nothing to do with the problem we were trying to solve, <laughs> it would seem. But when you solve this problem, you get the same behavior that you get these energy gaps. So he's doing an unphysical, well, you could make, make this somehow probably, but it's not a solid, but it has the same feature of having energy gaps, and the math is simpler. And several people commented the math was already too hard to do this one. What is the importance of knowing the configurations of a state? Well, if you want to know what's going on, you have to know the configuration. Um, but sometimes we don't care about the details of the configuration. We just want to know um, the statistics. So we need to know uh, how many states have a, a given energy. So then you don't, in that case, you don't care about the details of how the exact configurations, which configuration it's in. Just its energy. Any more questions? So uh, I put up last year's midterm on the web page. And the first page has a formula sheet, and I think the formula sheet for this year's midterm will be probably exactly the same. So uh, once you guys are doing the GRE this weekend, tomorrow. tomorrow. So after you get over that, you can rush home and start reading that formula sheet. Looking at the formula sheet, you can guess what questions I'm going to ask, probably. Okay, so we're doing identical particles. So summary, uh, we have an overall wave function. We can at least have a spatial part of the wave function and a spin part of the wave function, and we might have more stuff. But in the simplest case, we have wave function depending on position in space and the spin wave function. For fermions, the overall wave function has to be anti-symmetric. So there's two ways we can do that. We can make the spatial part anti-symmetric and the spin part symmetric. Minus one times plus one gives minus one. So the symmetric spin wave function is the triplet. It's the top state. They're both up. So this is the same as that. So it has to be symmetric. The other way to do it is take the spatial part symmetric and the spin part anti-symmetric. That's the singlet. And there's a relative phase between this one and this one to make it anti-symmetric. So 1 times minus 1 is still minus 1. For bosons, we need the overall wave function to be symmetric under interchange. So we can have 
symmetric times symmetric equals symmetric. One times one equals one. Or we can have anti-symmetric times anti-symmetric. Minus one times minus one is plus one. So that's that's supposed to be easy. The hard part is remembering remembering that fermions are anti-symmetric once you've got that part. Uh, so <coughs> consider two wave functions, psi a and psi b. We put two identical particles in them. Uh, there's two things we can do. We can take the symmetrized wave function. So we take the wave function to be psi a for 1, psi b for 2, plus the interchange. Then we'll get some wave function that looks like that. And if we anti-symmetrize, then they'll cancel out somewhere in the middle. Because one, if this we make this one have the positive sign and this one the negative sign, it has to go from positive to negative, so it goes through zero someplace. So the probability of being in the middle between these two peak places is much smaller here in the anti-symmetrized case than here. So effectively, these particles in this case look like there's a force pushing them apart because the probability of finding them they're pushed over to the side, whereas they're not pushed over to the side here. So that's the mysterious exchange force. So now, <coughs> now that we've solved hydrogen and we understand identical particles, we can attack the periodic table. <coughs> so if we take a nucleus with z protons, and some number of neutrons that we don't care about for now. The neutrons just change the mass. They don't do anything inter interesting in our approximation. So, uh, well, let's change this reduced mass. So take an atom with z protons, it has z electrons. Our Hamiltonian will have to have a kinetic term for each electron, some reduced mass, and a coulomb potential between the nucleus and that electron. And that will have a factor of z in it multiplying that potential. And then there'll be repulsion terms between all the electrons. So if we sum over all electrons where we're not going to sum over the electron repelling itself because then we'll get infinity. But we sum over all of those and uh, then we've double counted so we divide by two. And that's just a repulsive term. It's got a plus sign. Each electron repels every other electron. And in our first approximation, we're just going to neglect this. Later on, we'll come back and see how we can at least approximately take that into account. So that's another chapter. So the simplest case is helium, so z equals 2. And if we're neglecting this term, then our solutions are just going to be products of hydrogen wave functions. So all our solutions will look like one hydrogen wave function for one times hydrogen wave function for another one. So we can make uh, symmetrized guys. So the ground state has to be trying not to need this screen in a minute. The ground state for helium
look like psi 1, 0, 0, r1 times psi 1, 0, 0, r2. Because you put each electron in the lowest energy level. And we can put 2 in there because we can, since this is symmetric, we can make the spin wave function anti-symmetric. So it's in the singlet. So this one where the wave function, the spatial part is symmetrized, is called perihelium. So that's, that guy has this energy level. So because there's a factor of two in the potential, the energy levels went like alpha squared. So that's a factor of four. And we have two electrons, so there's two terms. So this guy will have an energy. E11 is 8 times minus 13.6 EV, which is about minus 109 EV. And experimentally, it's minus 79 EV. So that's the price of uh, neglecting this term. We don't quite have the right answer. Order of magnitude is correct. Next, on our next attempt, we'll get much closer. So we can also have excited states. So we can make excited perihelium states that look like we can, we can excite one of the electrons to an excited state of hydrogen and leave the other one in the ground state. And then we can symmetrize that. As long as we're in the anti-symmetric spin wave function, that's okay. So that's an excited perihelium. We can also anti-symmetrize. So if we put a minus sign in there, then it's called orthohelium. And we'll have to make the spin part of the wave function. This guy will have to be in the singlet. This guy will have to be in the triplet. In the spin part. So this one's got spin one. This one's got spin zero. And since this wave function is canceling, where the electrons would have been close, these electrons are further apart relative to these guys, so there's less repulsion. So that means the binding energy is smaller. Hey. The binding energy is smaller, so those levels get uh, it's less repulsion, so the energy level is lower. on so I wouldn't have to goof around at this point.
So then we can just extend that analysis up the periodic table. So go going through with these hydrogen wave functions, symmetrizing and anti-symmetrizing. And if we ignore repulsion, then we just use these hydrogen wave functions keep track of the fact that we can have two electrons in each hydrogen wave function because we can put them in a spin singlet. And we calculated before that for the en energy level of hydrogen, there's an n squared fold degeneracy because we have L can go from 0 to n minus 1, and M can go from minus L to plus L. So in the first energy level, we can fit in two electrons. In the second energy level, we have n squared times 2, so 8. In the third, we have 3 squared times 2, 18. And keep going up, 32, 50, etc. To compare that with the periodic table, uh, our approximation would predict that we have this many elements in each row. So this works, this one doesn't work. So at this point, as we're adding more electrons to fill up these energy levels, we start with the lowest angular momentum guy because the centrifugal term pushes things out. So the guys with higher angular momentum have less binding energy, so higher energy levels. We talked about that last time. So at that point, our approximation goes completely crazy because it doesn't finish filling up the third energy level. The fourth energy level, when you include those repulsion effects, has some states that are lower than the highest third energy level. So it jumps up and fills up some of the fourth energy level, then it goes back down and fills up the rest of the third. So that you have beyond here, you have to start keeping track of, even to get it qualitatively correct, you have to keep track of the repulsion. So that's this is just a table explaining what he explains in the book. So at this point, here we're filling in the 3-1. So we would have thought that we'd go to the 3-2. But when you include the repulsion, the 4-0, n equals 4, l equals 0, has a lower energy level than the n equals 3, l equals 2. So it fills in two of those fourth energy levels and then goes back and starts filling in the 3-2. there any questions about that? So it's all just using your hydrogen. You've developed a great intuition with hydrogen wave functions now. So this is just applying your intuition about hydrogen to the periodic table. You haven't developed an intuition about hydrogen wave functions? Nope. <laughs> okay, better practice before the midterm. Oh, and so <coughs> given all those wave functions, we can figure out the total angular momentum <coughs> if you include all the repulsion effects. Someone's figured out the total angular momentum of all the atoms in the periodic table. and. Uh, as you keep going up, this, is, this notation says there's two electrons in the 4s level. So argon was where the last one where our hydrogen intuition worked. 
as you go beyond Argon, you start filling in things in the wrong order. So after crypt, when you get to Krypton, you filled in two in the 4S, and then you put 10 in the 3D, and then six in the 4P. When you get to silver, so this means you've got all the electrons that were in argon. Now you've got all the electrons that were in krypton and silver plus these guys. So you've filled up 10 more in the 4D, and you've started on the fifth energy level of hydrogen, or that wave function. But, and when you work out adding up all these angular momenta, so there's 47 electrons with plus their spins plus their orbital angular momentum. It would take a while. It would be a very long midterm question to add those 47 angular momenta. Well, twice that. Um, but you guys could do it. Now, not well. If the midterm was 10 days long, you guys could do it. Just straightforward application of the same stuff. Uh, so at, at the end, what you find is that the total orbital angular momentum of all that stuff adds up to zero. It's in the S wave for the orbital. The total, the total angular momentum has L equals zero, so it's called S wave. And the total spin is spin a half. So a after adding up all the angular momentum of those 47 electrons, you're only left with the total angular momentum being half. So that's why when um, Stern and Gerlach sent their silver through their machine, through the magnetic field, they got two beams. Because all that complicated stuff reduced down to spin a half. So the silver acts like it's a spin a half, even though it's some very complicated thing. They're not exciting the energy level, so all the details about these wave functions don't matter for their experiment. All that matters is it's got spin half and some magnetic moment. So now you finally understand the stern like experiment. Except for, well, theoretically you understand it. And we're going to come back to that. Isn't that pretty? Our next step is to derive where those pretty pictures came from. So they come from considering a free electron gas. So let's ignore all the interactions and put a bunch of electrons in a box. So potential inside the box uh, when x is less than lx, potential is zero. And then the same for y, there's an ly. And for z, there's an lz. And otherwise, it's infinity. So we solved that problem a long time ago. So you guys remember the solutions. So we solved the three-dimensional Schrodinger equation for that potential. And we found that the wave functions are labeled by three integers, nx, ny, and z. And they're just sine functions. So in the x direction, we have the x wave function is sine nx pi x over lx. And then the same thing for y. 
pi of y over ly and sine z pi z over lz. And the energy levels we found h bar squared pi squared over twice the mass nx squared over lx squared plus ny squared over ly squared plus mz squared over lz squared. And for fun, we wrote that as the square of a vector k. So this looks like p squared over 2m, h bar squared. So, are these wave functions eigenstates of momentum? I saw one person say no. They're not eigenstates of momentum because if I differentiate sine, I get cosine. But they're eigenstates of momentum squared because if I differentiate second time, I get back a sine. So these are eigenstates of momentum squared and so it's not surprising that the energy, since there's no interactions, hmm? what, what, what's the problem? It didn't make, didn't make sense that the momentum should not have a cosine. So we have a particle bouncing back and forward in a box. So half the time, it's momentum this way, and it bounces, moly, moly. <laughs> bounces back and with the same momentum, but it's got the opposite sign. So can't be in an eigenstate of momentum because it's flipping this direction that it's moving. But if the magnitude of the momentum doesn't change, then it can be an eigenstate of p squared. So momentum is derivative operator in quantum mechanics. So a derivative on here gives a cosine. It's a sign because we impose the boundary conditions that it vanishes at the edge of the box because the potential is infinite outside. And we chose one edge of the box to be zero. If we chose the edge of the box to have a different coordinate, then it would be a sine and a cosine. It would be more confusing. So if we, if we differentiate this twice, we get back sine functions. So it is an eigenstate of p squared. And the Hamiltonian is just p squared because there's no interactions inside the box. So this is just p squared over 2m. So these guys are eigenstates of p squared. And we talk about this uh, wave vector k, which has components kx, ky, kz, which are just labeled by these quantum numbers nx. So nx pi over lx and y pi over ly. And z pi over lz. So we call these wave numbers. To be technically correct, we don't want to talk about momentum because they're not eigenstates of momentum. But up to the sign of the momentum, it's flipping back and forth in the sign. But the magnitude is staying constant. So you could also say they're eigenstates of absolute value, dx. 
absolute value of Py. So you can think of these as being proportional to the momentum, absolute value of the momentum components. Right? So Kx is Px absolute value for h bar. So up to that absolute value, we should think of this as being like a moment momentum, proportional to momentum. So we can we can talk about things in momentum space, in k space. So every state, every eigenstate, energy eigenstate is labeled by those three integers. So if you plot that in k space. secretly like momentum space is some grid of points and they're spaced apart by pi over lx in the x direction, pi over ly in the y direction. So a particular energy eigenstate is some discrete point in this k space. So if we think about, so if we draw one little piece of this grid box in that space it has eight corners. Each one of those corners is an energy eigenstate labeled by those three integers in x, m, y, and z. Um, and it's more fun to think about boxes than points, or at least that's the approach that people usually take. So instead of talking about identifying a state with a point, we can identify a state with a box. Each box has eight corners. Each corner has eight boxes around it. And there's probably some something fishy going on down at the origin. But we're talking about 10 to the 23 electrons. So any any mistake that we make for some finite number near the origin, we don't care about. Okay. So I'm gonna we'll say that. So classically, this would be like a momentum space, and we could think about how uh, how things are distributed in momentum space. Right? But in quantum mechanics, there's this discrete set of states. So we want we're going to associate if we associate each box with a state, and we can talk about the volume that each state takes up. So the volume in K space, the volume of this little box is pi cubed over LX, LY, LZ, which is pi cubed over the volume of the whole box. And if we have N atoms, So if we have a box of n atoms, we might expect that some of the electrons are bound to the atom. It's also possible that some of the electrons aren't bound to the atom and float around the box. 
So we don't know how to calculate that today. So we'll just say that for each atom, Q electrons get to move around in the box, so they're not bound to an atom. So this n is some number like 10 to the 23. Q is some number like 1 or 2. So this is a fudge factor because we don't know how to calculate the everything exactly. And we could put two electrons in each for each one of these states. We can put two electrons in because we can put them in a single state. One's been up, one's been down. So we have n times q electrons. So that will fill up n q over two states. Since we can put two electrons in each state. People are puzzled. So the states are labeled by nx, ny, and z. And I can have two electrons with the same values of those ends. With n atoms and q electrons are floating around per atom. So this nq is the total number of electrons, and we'll fill up half that many states. start adding these electrons one at a time, we'll fill up the ones that have uh, n equals 1. When those are filled, we'll get the n equals 2 guys. We'll keep filling them up until we fill up as many states. And so after we've put in 10 to the 23, roughly there'll be some approximately 1 eighth of a sphere will be filled up. Because when we have 10 to the 23, the little discreteness, this is some, right, the surface is some discrete thing. Imagine stacking up Lego blocks. If you have 10 to the 23 Lego blocks, you can make a pretty good approximation to a sphere. So we'll call the radius of that sphere KF, F for Fermi. So that sphere has a volume. 4 thirds pi kfq. It's the volume of the sphere divided by 8, because we're only taking positive values. And we had nq over 2 states that are filled. Each one takes up a box pi cubed over b. So this is just a tricky way of counting what value of n we're getting to after we've put in this many electrons, nx, ny, and z, right? So we can solve for kf. So we'll bring the 8 over here. So we'll have the 3nq 
uh, multiplied by, oh, it's 4 over 8. So multiply by 2, we'll cancel this 2. Divide by pi, there's pi cubed over v, and then we need the cube root. We can call the density, the number density. So that's 3 rho pi squared cube root. That's the den number density of three electrons. So this boundary between the filled energy levels and the unfilled ones is called the Fermi surface. So since we know the wave number on the surface, we know the energy. So all these guys on the surface have the same energy. Because the energy just depends on k squared. So the energy of the Fermi surface h bar squared over 2m kf squared. It's 2 thirds the power because now it's kf squared. So we can also calculate the total energy so this is the energy that an electron sitting on this surface has. If we want to calculate the total energy of all the electrons put together, we'll have to integrate over the interior of the uh, octant of the sphere. So if you think about taking a shell, the thickness dk, volume of that shell is 4 pi k squared and we need 1 eighth of it times the thickness dk. The number of electrons that we have in the shell is the shell volume and the volume for each state two because there's two electrons in each state. So we have two times the volume of the shell and the volume per state is pi cubed over the total volume. So this is B over pi squared, K squared dK. So the total energy 
well, the energy in the shell is the energy of each electron, h bar squared over 2m times k squared, times the number of electrons per shell, which is this, p over pi squared k squared dk. So this is the number density of states, right? The fixed energy. So if we want the total energy, just integrate that. Bring out the constant factors. We have an integral of k to the fourth dk. So there's a k squared from the energy of each electron, a k squared from that number density with that energy. And we have to integrate from 0 to the value of k at the Fermi surface. So that integral will give us k Fermi to the fifth over 5. Fermi is still instant. So if we plug in 3nq pi squared over v for k Fermi, to the minus 5 thirds, and we have the volume to the plus 1 there, so we'll get volume to the minus 2 thirds. So that tells us that dE total dV is negative. So if you make the volume bigger, the energy, total energy goes down, and if you squeeze it, the total energy goes up. So that means there's a positive pressure. So that's the degeneracy pressure, or exclusion pressure. So, um, is this crazy? Yep. Is there like a trick question about the quantum mechanics? Is it all crazy? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's our eight brains that are crazy. Yes. Uh, so the question is, if you increase the volume of uh, the shell and case space actually increasing the allowed momentum. I'm talking about the volume of the box. Oh, if I increase the volume of the box. Never mind. So, for example, we didn't take into account any temperature effects, right? I have another yeah. question. How would you, could you apply this to neutrons as well? Like where yeah, electrons generate pressure flow and we'll do the same process through. Yeah, we're going to do that. I don't think we'll do it by the end of class, but on Monday. So if you apply this to a real example, take copper. And you can measure the Fermi energy. It's about 7 electron volts. If you convert that to a temperature, 
what temperature of an electron would, what temperature would you have to raise the temperature to to have the same energy per electron? That temperature, call that Fermi temperature, it's about eight times 10 to the fourth Kelvin. The melting point of copper Ten to the three Kelvin. So if you heat your copper up to the point that it melts, the thermal energy of an electron at that temperature is still tiny compared to the energy at the Fermi surface. So as long as your solid is still solid, those temperature effects are tiny corrections to the Fermi surface. The other thing, reason we might think it's crazy is that we haven't included any interactions. <coughs> so now I'm going to show you the pretty picture again. So um, you can do more refined calculations where you include all the interactions. Typically, that would mean you need to write some big computer program. Um, but if you include the interactions, in some cases, you get a Fermi surface that looks sort of spherical. But uh, not always. And there are all also energy bands that you have to take into account. So you get. Fermi surfaces that look like this. So let's, I'm going to look at this one here, chromium. It just appeals to me. So here's the Fermi surface of chromium. If you go to the web, that web page is linked on our course page. That purple mess is the Fermi surface of chromium. And you can click on that picture and get thermal of the Fermi surface. So these yellow things are some conduction band. And the Fermi surface is the purple. So taking into account the structure of the lattice and how the electrons interact with that three-dimensional structure and the other electrons is uh, complicated, but can be done. So here's, here's this is a real Fermi surface. Any questions? This is not the next homework assignment. <laughs> you said that's taking into account the repulsion. Yeah. And the lattice structure. So different metals have different weird shapes because they're in different lattices. What is the lattice then? It's the lattice of the chromium atoms. I know. What's the, I mean, oh, what is the lattice structure? Yes. I don't know. You can look it up somewhere, I guess. Uh, we have two minutes, so okay, we'll start the next thing unless there's a Fermi surface question. So the point I wanted to get across was that the Fermi surface is a, a qualitative approximation, and when you do everything correctly, there's still a Fermi surface, it's just not a sphere.
So our next real-world application is white dwarfs. So um, if you have a star of the right size, eventually it burns up its fuel and cools down. And if it's not too big, it can end up as a white dwarf. And the thing that keeps it stable is the, is the degeneracy pressure from the Fermi surface of those electrons. So we have a sphere of radius r that's filled with star stuff. It has a volume four thirds pi r cubed. So it has. So there's some Fermi energy, right? Some total energy and degeneracy pressure. I don't have to write this down, it's still over here. So we'll use a slightly different notation now. M will be the number of nucleons, not the number of atoms. So the number of protons plus the number of neutrons. And Q is the number of electrons per nucleon. So instead of being one or two, this will be like a half. Because there's typically as many neutrons as protons. And we just have to plug in this volume is the volume of a sphere instead of a box. So if we plug in this volume, what we'll get is since the volume goes like r cubed, we write it in terms of the radius of the star. Uh, this will go like 1 over r squared now, since it went like volume to the minus 2 thirds. I think we're out of time. So you can think about this over the weekend and guess what the answer is going to be. The answer is that we can't, if this is all we do, we'll get the wrong answer. We have to include some interactions. Interactions we have to include are gravitational interactions. So the star is neutral, so at long distances, there's no coulomb potential because there's an equal number of electrons and protons. But you can't screen gravity. So if you have a star-sized mass, nothing will screen that gravitational potential. So we'll have to include that gravitational. 